Good morning. Hey, uh, there's some empty seats up front if you guys want. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I am glad to uh, be back. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave Howard. I'm one of the uh, elders here. I'm part of the teaching team. And um, hopefully, <clears throat> if I got my roles right, I'll teach you today. We'll see. But um, <clears throat> if you just heard the passage, um, I, I, I was trying to figure out a way to frame this. If David <clears throat> was part of an exclusive kind of like uh, leaders club type of cigar club, only allowing monarchs, sovereigns, tribal chiefs, you know, the authoritarian types, and they heard this story, they would definitely kick him out. They would definitely kick him out because this story is a leader, a king, extending mercy that is unusual, exceedingly unusual for the time, right? We're, we're ancient Near East, right? This time, the 1000 BC in that Mesopotamic era. If you took over a kingdom, there were some things that you had to do. You had to kill anybody that was left over that was a possible heir to the throne. David messed up on that, man. You had to kill any traces, any vestige of leftover that could possibly rival you to occupy the throne. That's standard operating practice. Actually, when you look through history, that goes all the way up into the Middle Ages. So whether you were a child, a little boy, a little girl, a son, a daughter, an older one, they were normally met with death. And that ensured the present sovereign that there'd be no competition. There'd be no sympathy. There'd be no empathy, that nobody, you're not going to drum up a rebellion somewhere. Guess, guess how I'm going to eliminate all that? I'm just going to kill you. Doesn't mean that I'm terrible. It just means that I don't want any resistance going forward. And that would include any sympathizers. That would include anybody harboring someone from the royal family. So that covers everything. That makes sure that everybody's covered. And this isn't only known within the royals, within the kingdoms, within kings and rulers, tribal chiefs. This was known by everybody. Everybody knew this. And I say all that so that we could get an understanding of the time and the thinking of the time. Because we could look at this story and, you know, oh, gee, that was actually kind of kind what David did, right? You know, you look, look at this guy, he's not really doing too well, and he shed some kindness on him. He was, he was kind of nice. It was kind of a nice thing to do in a modern-day society. We might call that that. I mean, it, it was definitely extra. Don't get me wrong. It was extra, but it, it was something nice. But I want to tell you that this was something astounding. And I want to look at this with the eyes that where we see ourselves, relative to God's grace 
I want you to apply that as an overlay onto this story. As you see yourself receiving grace, meaning receiving a favor that you certainly don't deserve, and I'll put me in there too, I want you to, let's look at this story. It's a very short story. It kind of speaks for itself. I only got five minutes of material, and then I'm out of here. But it, it, it is very clear the way it's written, and I want to just kind of draw out some nuances with it. Okay. <clears throat> I'd like to take us back, if I could, to chapter 7. Because in 7... If you remember, chapter 7 is that definitive chapter where God tells David through Nathan, hey man, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your son, and your house is going to exist forever. Meaning, out of your house will come the Messiah. And guess what? We here are the benefits of that. that what, the, what was told to David in that time here we say we rejoice because that was told to David, right? That's, that's that context. But if you remember how chapter 7, back in uh, 2 Samuel, started, it said, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, you get this feeling that David is now in this state of realizing, wow, God is just, He's blessed me super, man. He has done things in my life I could not imagine. He's giving me victory in the battle, and he's giving me rest. And what is the first thing David wants to do? How can I bless the Lord? How can I bless God? I'm in this moment of, of pause. How can I bless God? Right? That's chapter 7. And then we go into eight. And if you remember eight, it was last week. Eight was full of battles, full of victories. Full of battles, full of I mean, in the tens of thousands. Remember, Pastor Lee led us through that. And when you get to the end of chapter eight, verse 14, it says this. It says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So by the time we start chapter nine, Nine starts in that same state where I realize God is just tremendous in my life. And now David, now instead of saying, how will I bless God? He's like, how will I bless someone else with this blessing that I've received? How will I take this and bless someone else? So that's what we have in this chapter nine. And I'll take us right to the first verse, because that's where he says it. And it's very specific. He says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Right? It's a question that he is throwing out there, and it introduces us back to Jonathan. I'm going to touch on that in a second. But he throws this question out, and he's like, hey, does anybody know of anybody? Are there any leftovers from the house of Saul? And along comes this person named Ziba. <clears throat> Ziba, we realize, is a former servant of Saul. <clears throat> he's got a big house. We'll, we'll see that in a little later. 
and he brings Ziba before him and he says, I want to show kindness. He actually qualifies the kindness. He says, I want to show the kindness of God to anyone who is left from the house of Saul. Ziba, do you know anyone? Ziba says, yes. There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Doesn't call him by name. The son of Jonathan, who's crippled in his feet. And he gives him the address. So he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So Ziba's answer introduces us <clears throat> to the two people that we haven't seen in a bit. Mephibosheth, which is the son, and Jonathan. So I want to touch on these two real quick so we can see. And if you go to 2 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 4, In verse number four, we're reminded. Now, this verse is drawing from the end of 1 Samuel. And if you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his sons, actually, in battle at Mount Gilboa, are killed by the Philistines. And this verse here is going to reflect on that. <clears throat> and it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Right? This is where the battle took place. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. So perhaps he fell, he broke his legs, and there was no type of modern resetting of the legs, of the bones. And he was lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. <clears throat> so it's exactly as, as I described earlier, right? You have a conquering kingdom. They're going to come and look for those heirs. This nurse did right. I got to get you out of here. She grabs him up. But in her haste, she drops the boy. And now the boy is lame in his feet. He, he is lame. He is crippled. And that's the status of Mephibosheth. But we get mention of Jonathan. We haven't heard about Jonathan in a while. Second Samuel kind of begins with the funeral of Jonathan, right? They fell in battle going against the Philistines. David honored him. But if you recall, Jonathan and David were boys. I mean, right? In modern vernacular, they were tight. As a matter of fact, let's go to 1 Samuel 18. <clears throat> In 1 Samuel 18, and I'm going to jump here because really you see a lot of the weaving of this friendship throughout. But 1 Samuel 18, right in the first verse, says this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. I know we've talked about this, but it's, it's good to understand this in, in light of our text today. On a soul level, they were bonded. They saw each other as each other. As a matter of fact, if you go on down to uh, uh, verse 4, it says this. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. He's basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the rightful prince. Saul's my dad and he's the king. But I am so bound to you. You can be me. It was already a pointing to the fact that God had anointed him. You can be me. You can take my spot. And if we go further, 1 Samuel 20. <clears throat> this is when David was on the lamb. He was running from Saul, and Saul was relentless. And now things don't sound so cheery. But all of chapter 20 is this interweaving of this covenant that these guys are making with each other. And David, in this kind of panic state, says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut yourself your, your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And it keeps going back and forth. They keep swearing back and forth. And Jonathan, verse 17, <clears throat> made David swear again by his love for him. And he loved him as much as he loved his own soul. And then I'll jump right to... Uh, verse 42, because this is their last meeting. It says this. It says, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever, forever. When we look at our text, there is no talk of co covenant. There's no we don't have that word come up. There's no talk of promise. There's no talk of, hey, I, I told this guy I was going to do this, and now I got to do this. There's no talk of that. It's David basically says, How can, is there anyone left that I could bless? So let's go to verse 5. <clears throat> David finds that information out from Ziba. Let's go get this guy. It says, then David... Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Emil, at Lodabar. In the King James, it says, go fetch that guy. He tells his people, go fetch him. They grab him up. They bring him to David. Now, I want to throw in a modernism, right? There's a little modernism I want you to understand here. <clears throat> in our modern day, we're used to not, we're used to promises being broken. They may not be broken by us, but if you hear someone say, ah, oh, man, bro, I couldn't do it, we're used to that. We're used to that. I'm not saying it's good in any way. And David could have easily kind of slipped into the expediency of circumstance. A few examples. Yeah, you know, we were kids. We were young. <laughs> you know, we made some promises. I remember it was raining that day. You know, the, the things pass, right? That's an easy one, right? We were young. Here's one. Jonathan's dead. I don't really have to fulfill this. Right? He's dead. I, I, right? I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a reality. Jonathan's dead. Do I really got to do this? It's an expediency of the day. What about this? Hey, 
You know, nobody was there when we made those promises to each other. I mean, he knows, God knows, but nobody else was there. There were no witnesses to this covenant, right? Expediency of the day, of the circumstance. Here's one you could probably relate to. Bro, I got a lot of wives, a lot of kids. There's no way I could fit this in my schedule. <laughs> Bro, I'm busy. I'm tapped out. I am tapped out. I think the worst one could have been, yeah, I promised Jonathan, I'll fulfill the promise, but I'll half-step it. Yeah, I'll get him a little shack somewhere. I'll send an aide to check him every now and then. You know, not really fulfill my promise, just kind of half-step it a little bit. David is the king. Nobody would have questioned him. He could have fell into any of those modern, in that time, expediencies, but he did not. And look at verse 6. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. So let's figure out what's in the mind of Mephibosheth. He might be like, yo, my grandfather told me a lot about you. He hated you, man. He hated you. Or my dad told me a lot about you before he died. And he said you were an honorable man. Or Ishbosheth was my uncle and he was murdered heinously. It's unclear who had what to do with that. He has all this as he's coming in to see now the reigning king who took over. And again, I'll go back to the beginning of what we talked about. In that time, in that century, you killed the leftovers. So Jonathan, uh, Mephibosheth comes before his face and he is prostate in front of David, meaning he is laid out face down. And he's probably wondering, am I going to feel a spear run through my back? Will this be the end of me? And David says his name, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Verse 7, and David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. That's a Hebrew word. You've probably heard this before. Hesed. I will show you kindness. Hesed, you see it everywhere where you see the loving kindness of God. I will show you a profound kindness. As a matter of fact, let me read it as we expand that word hezed, which is a full word in God's kindness towards us. So let me, re let me read it like that. Do not fear, for I will show you the hezed, the faithful love, the loyal love, the love that I have for your father, the love that I am now going to show you in action, not just words, not just thoughts, not just kind, kind of just sprinkly words. I'm going to show you a love in action on behalf of your father for the sake of the covenant that I shared with your father. And listen to this, and then he says, 
and I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. No, Mephibosheth, you are not dying today. That was what you expected, and that's what every other king would have expected me to do. No, you are not dying. On the plus side, I'm going to restore to you all the stuff that you do not have. I'm going to bless you in a way that says that you're not a guest at my table. As we'll see in the text, you eat like one of my sons at the table. Are you guys seeing the picture between that love and the love God shows us? Are you guys seeing that? I'm going to keep spelling it out, but I just want to make sure you keep up with me. Are you seeing that love, this kind of grace? And what is Mephibosheth's response to this? It's very similar to David's response back in chapter 7. When David realizes you've done all this, remember David's prayer? I don't even know where to process this. But, they, but, but Mephibosheth is a little lower. He says this in verse 8. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Remember, we've talked about this. The dog in, the, in this culture is not like the dog that we see with the you know, scarf around the neck and the sunglasses in the passenger seat of my convertible. It's not that. It's not that. Dogs were lowly, and they were dirty. And he says, basically, I am of no matter. A dead dog is basically saying, I am of no matter. I am of no consequence. I am insignificant. I am miserable and impoverished that you would do this for me. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But David answers basically in doing, in richly fulfilling the covenant. How does he answer? He tells Ziba, yo, you and your 15 sons, you and your 20 servants, you work for this guy now. And you will till the land that I gave him that was his father's. And you will produce food in that land. You'll produce it for him. But quick note, he's going to be eating at my table. So you'll probably be producing it for a son. Because remember, we see this in the text. Mephibosheth had a son. And I think it's important to note something. Jonathan and Saul's death at this point, when the little five-year-old boy was grabbed up, this is about 15, 20 years ago. This is a man that stands before David. This is how this passage basically ends. I have three things I want to draw from this, and I I want you to take it with you. David starts the text as he started in seven. He asked a question that we should all ask. It's a very, it's not a profound question. It's not philosophical. It's a very clear question, and the question is basically informed by how much I see God working in my life. And what was the question? How may I bless? 
how may I, who really is a nobody in nobody land, who has been shown the grace of God in a such a profound and undeserved way, how might I bless? And I'll contextualize it because here, Mephibosheth, in a strange way, might be considered an enemy. So I'll make the task harder because the task is the exact task that God asks us. How might I bless somebody I really don't want to bless? Oof. How might I bless someone who, when I bless them, would say, holy cow, I was not expecting that from you. How might I bless to show you, despite how you've treated me, God has been profound in my life, and I can afford to bless you. I don't hold any of that in my pocket, because the blessing is so great. How might I bless is how David started this passage. And I, I, I was going to do this in the order of the passage, just three sections. How might I bless? But I'm going to jump to the second part, and then I'll jump to the other part. I, I called it Lost and Found. The passage actually starts with the found part. It shows us how David pursues Mephibosheth. But I'm going to start with the lost part because I think we got to look at Mephibosheth. We, we don't do this, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to make you not feel so well. How's that? I'm going to make you not feel so well. Mephibosheth, when you look at Mephibosheth in this little passage, his name, it, it's all captured. His name means a shameful thing. And remember, he lived in this place called Lodabar. And Lodabar means a barren land. So you have this shameful thing in a barren land, and we already know this guy has crippled the feet. He's lame. He can't get from here to there. Actually, when we look at him, it's probably something we don't want to look at. And I would say that we certainly are lame just like that. I, I, when you look at Mephibosheth physically, and you look at where he is, where he lived, the fact that he probably wasn't hiding, only Zeba knew where he was. You know, it, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I know where that guy lives. Only Zeba knew where he was. So it, it, it's very... Um, it's very clear to kind of consider that he was probably, I'm going to stay in the shadows. So here's a man who's crippled of feet, has a name that means a shameful thing, and when he's brought before David and he's blessed, you could tell his thinking is off, because really, in a Hebraism, what he said by a dead dog is basically, I am garbage. I'm garbage. And when we look at that, but, but before we want to jump in and help him with his self-esteem, 
I think we should look at it carefully because this is us. It's a very clear picture, right? And I know we don't, we don't think we are that dirty and that foul and that shameful. We, we always elevate ourselves. I mean, I'm not that high, but I'm never that low. I'm never ever that low. But Mephibosheth is plain and in black and white for us to see. It's the bottom. It's the very bottom. And it's important for us to see this because it's hopeless. It's completely broken. It has nothing on its own. It has no trace of anything that could say, I can bring this before the divine court and God would accept it. He has nothing. We have nothing. You come with nothing. You come with absolutely nothing but shame and dirt and filth. And you say, whoa, bro. I didn't come here to hear that. But it's a truth. And I, I, we can't lose sight of what Mephibosheth is because Mephibosheth is us. And what happens is when we try to not look at that picture, you know what we do? We hide it, and we deny it, and we ignore it, and we suppress it, and we medicate it, and we cover it up, and we pretend, we pretend that we're not that. A little better than that. But if we are a little better than that, then how on earth will you be able to tell the difference with the grace of God if you're better? Grace becomes grace because when I look at it in contrast to who I really am, it becomes white as snow. When I look at the contrast of really who I am against, if I, when I look at grace against my pride, which tells me I'm something other than I really am, but when I look at grace, against a broken and contrite spirit. Oh my, grace becomes something that would make everyone here stand up and say, hallelujah, hallelujah. Isaiah 57, 15, you're probably familiar with this. It speaks about the two places that God exists, right? He exists only in two places in this little passage in Isaiah. It says, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, who, who lives forever whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, but there's another place he dwells. I also dwell with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. If you think you're high and holy, he ain't there. That's a separate abode for him. But he does come and he makes his home in those that are contrite and broken of spirit. As a matter of fact, it continues to say, it says, 
in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In order to do that, this is where I dwell. I'm going to wrap it up, and I think the end of... Uh, mm, mm -mm. See, I jumped. That's the lost part, right? But we are found, right? I, I, can't, I can't leave you with the bad news. I got to give you the good news. But I want you to remember the bad news. <laughs> I want you to remember the bad news. And when we look at the text, we realize that David asked. He looked for one that he could bless, right? He did this. He inquired. He remembered the covenant. And he went after. It was like doing a Google search. Where is this guy? And he found where Mephibosheth was, and he didn't leave it there. He dispatched his guys, go get him and bring him here so that I might bless him. And I want you to think about that. Because you were lost, and God found you. You were called. You were chosen. You were reconciled. You did none of that on your own. I recognize that I did. I, I turned to him in my broken state. But I got no claims to that. All I could claim is what he has done in the life of a broken one. That's the only thing I got claims on. What he has done, not what I have done. And I need you to see that difference. And this is the found part. This is the part we all could relate to. In Romans 5, I, I'm going to expand this again. This is the Amplified. I usually use the SV. But it explains this very beautifully. In Romans 5, in the first verse, and you're probably familiar with this verse, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, keep in mind, in our lost state, we are at enmity with God. But look what it says. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through whom, meaning based on the covenant relationship that we have with Christ, through Christ and the new covenant, now we have obtained an introduction it's like the horns that blow when they're announcing someone. That I could now enter into that holy place where I could not enter in before. Basically, it's saying that introduction is access. You have access. David invited Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth was, I am a dead dog. And he said, no, you will sit at my table like my son. That's what you have. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it says, by faith, this, by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope. Hope is not, ah, rich. Hope is the absolute certainty of a future good, of the glory of God. And I will close you with this. I, I think to me, uh, this is the best part of this passage. Not because it's the end and then we could get out of here, but it is actually the best part. It is the best verse. And I'll, I'll take it from a few verses up. We're back in, in 2 Samuel. And it says, uh, <clears throat> this is starting from verse 11, it says, 
Then Ziba said to the king, right, he dispatches Ziba, and Ziba answers, he says, according to all the Lord, king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Listen to this. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. They mentioned that. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. We talked about that. Look at this most beautiful verse that we should all keep in mind before we leave here today. So Mephibosheth lived with David in Jerusalem, in the house. We, we literally, it's like saying in the house of God, right? In this type. Listen, listen to what it says. It says, for he ate always at the king's table. But it ends with this. Now he was lame in both feet. What? It shows the grace, the grace of David in this story that he goes and he grabs this guy out of a covenant love for Jonathan. And I would remind you that out of a covenant love through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, he comes and he grabs us. And we look at our feet as we sit at the table and we are still lame. And it's a wonder to us how that makes sense. The last verse basically spells it out clearly. In 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, it says this in uh, verse number seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning us, very fragile, very delicate, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Glory, glory to the king. Please continue to look. It's, it's not a groveling thing to say, I'm a broken person. That's not a groveling. I know there's, 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 there's this whole idea that, you know, I, I'm, I'm in victory and God has blessed me and I, I get all that. But it's not a broken thing to say how broken we are. It's not the grovel of a Christian who says, oh, woe is me, God is still. It is not that. Paul was the first. Paul, the greatest apostle, was saying, I'm the worst of all of them. But he was able to see that in his terrible condition, oh, it made grace light up like the sun. And in that grace, oh, what can I do? Who can I bless? Who can I bless? Let's close with a word of prayer. Bless you, God. Bless you. Bless your name. We are thankful, Father, because... Uh, it is something that we have to look at often, your grace. It is something that we have to look at often, our brokenness. We get caught up in living lives that look at neither of them. We thank you that in this passage you made it clear to us our broken state.
but a grace and a mercy and a hased, a loving kindness that comes after us. We are smitten by that, Lord. May each one here, with eyes wide open, gaze at that regularly, Father, because it's through that that we can give freely of what you have given us. I pray, Lord, that you would bless each one with that clear, clear vision of not only who they are, but even greater, who you are in light of that. Bless each family, Lord. Bless each listener. Bless each young person. Bless each old person. Bless the ones that have been on the fence a long time, Lord. Bless them and bring them in. By your mercy and by your grace, we give you thanks. O oh, great and mighty God. Amen. <laughs>